Hello. Today, Tyrone MacDonald has accepted an invitation to chat with me, Patricia, at P Towns. I say chat, but he'll also be reading some of his work. And there's a poet who was shortlisted for a Haiku Foundation Touchstone Individual Poems Award. Such a mouthful. I think you'll enjoy the quality of the work we're going to hear today. It was a real treat to talk with Tyrone. On paper, we should have had very little in common. He's an American, I'm a European. We have different cultural backgrounds. His, African-American. Mine, London Irish, with a heavy dose of Switzerland thrown in. And yet, well, you make up your mind. But I think we discovered shared common interests and experiences. We'll talk culture, we'll talk history, we'll have a laugh, and he'll make me cry, but in a good way, if that makes sense. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed talking to Tyrone. And if you'd like to read his poems, you'll find them in the show notes for this episode on the Poetry P website. Today I'm joined by Tyrone MacDonald. If you haven't read his work before, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a terribly private poet, so here's what I've got. He's from Brooklyn, a Brooklyn resident, and his haiku and senryu and tanker have appeared in Modern Haiku, Bottle Rockets, Heron's Nest, Modern Tanker, the now defunct Raw Nerves, Black Bow, South by Southeast, Frog Pond and Haiku Presence. And of course, he's been on the Touchstone Award shortlist in 2013, with I think it was this poem to own, Morning fog, when my embryo had gills. Morning fog, when my embryo had gills. And that, that was from the heron's nest. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, that's very interesting. I was looking at that one, Tyrone, and you've put an ellipsis after when my embryo had, when my, when my embryo ellipsis, third line, had gills. Right. I, th- I thought that was really intriguing and it's going back a wee while, but do you remember why you punctuated like, like that? Yeah. You know what? Because I wanted to invoke a sense of um, time passing, right? I, I didn't want to do either, let's say an enjambment, which would have been too abrupt. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to leave anything at all. Um, so an ellipse, was actually because you know was the best you know um, punctuation choice for me because an ellipse at least visually uh, kind of mimics um, a cloud right or ev- mm-hmm. evanescence right mm-hmm. like okay. um, a mist it does yeah, that it does definitely it does that and also um, it kind of also um, displays like a, a certain time passing you know and when you're talking about like, um, and we're talking about, I was essentially touching upon evolution and I just never got the debate, which it seems to me like a, a debate within Western culture of creation and in evolution as though they're diametrically opposed. And in my mind, they're not diametrically opposed. And what always fascinated me with, 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 with human gestation is how that was its own microcosm of the evolutionary process. How we start from, let's say one cell organism and become like this, complicated mess that we are, you know, you know, eating, making love and waging war and, and, and building civilization and making art and doing all this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
So the ellipsis, just to get back to that question, I, I just want to evoke this, this passage of time, you know, um, and that was the best punctuation, you know, to do so. Uh-huh. No, that's great. I was just intrigued because, I mean, punctuation doesn't get used an awful lot these days. But No, no it doesn't. No, no it doesn't. Um, and I, I'm trying to sort of wage a little little band of, of warriors to bring it back a little bit more, but I thought that was a, a really intriguing way of, mm-hmm. of punctuating that poem. Thank you. Thank you for that exp- explanation. Anytime. Anytime. So another one I want to talk about. Um, sure. Lunar landing, shipwreck of my slave name. I don't know if I've read that right. It, it, is, is that how you broke it up? Lunar landing, shipwreck. Sorry. Lunar landing, <laughs> shipwreck of my slave name. And that's from Roadrunner Haiku Journal. Um, yeah. That's. I thought that was a really, really interesting poem. Would you like to tell us a bit about it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, at that time, it, it was like a number of things were going on. Right. Because the poem, the theme of the poem just dealt with uh, ancestry, particularly of African-Americans and, and, and people um, in the African diaspora who who were brought over um, as a result of the transatlantic slave trade and that break in identity. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because many people, you know, particularly Europeans and other people. They can they have their names. And 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 even even if you, you came to the United States is indentured servant, you know, you can like find your lineage through your name. Yes. Right? Yes. Which is which is always difficult for African Americans. You you basically your name basically relates to basically who owns your family. And and the things I, I put lunar landing was to actually talk about the whole actually lunar landing mm-hmm. like in the 60s. Yeah. And the planting of the flag and, and that to me always had um reminded me of like, let's say colonization, some strange mm-hmm. reason, planting flags. And my whole experience is, is, is person of African ancestry was a colliding of those two worlds. Yeah. You know, was a colliding of those two worlds. And actually was also playing around with, with sci-fi, you know, yes. a, a little bit. It's funny because in the 1990s, it was like, you know, when you, in the late nineties, when you, when like, um, when a lot of haiku exchanges was done through like groups, like Yahoo groups and there was actually a, a sci-fi haiku group. And at first I thought, this is kind of gimmicky, man. And I, I, I you know, I, I didn't take it seriously, but as the years going on and with Roadrunner and, and Roadrunner has been doing like a lot of experimental work, I actually gotten to the point where, you know what, this actually can be, you know, sci-fi themes can actually be used, um, you know, seriously. Yes. You know, and, and not be gimmicky. You know? Yes. Yeah. And so that brought me to this one. So it was kind of like part, you know, Afrofuturistic or sci-fi, Afro sci-fi and dealing with the whole subject of, of ancestry. I had never really thought about it before until I read that poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it led to a great discussion between my, my husband and I. Exactly what you've just been saying. Uh, we can both trace our lineage way back to the year dot practically more or less you know um but you as you just said your lineage you can take it back to the point where there was a slave owner and i'm guessing guessing his name was mcdonald right um and then where do you go from there are you able to go any further or would it take a huge amount of work and effort 
and then you'd never get anywhere? Well, well, as far as, well, the most difficult part is when it comes to the historical part. Mm-hmm. Now, due to genetics, you know, and, and the ancestral oh. genetics, it's a little easier, you mm-hmm. know, as far as that. But, but then the genetics, you know, you don't have the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, 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 for people, the story is, is, is important, yeah. you know, very important, you know, yeah. and the story is, is where basically where the, you know, the, the struggle comes in because a lot, a lot of times it's particularly, um, you know, when it comes to um, t- topics of slavery and so forth, there's a lot of shame and, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's a lot of pain that a lot of times families don't want to talk about, you Okay, know? not just, not just with slavery, but even after slavery, when you, when you're talking about either Jim Crow or when you talk about some type of displacement. So there's a lot of, you know, shame and a lot of pain that families don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and when you do, you know, go through your family history and you, you know, you reveal a lot of secrets that some people want to kept hidden, you know, you know, so that part is very difficult. <laughs> you know, the genetics part, you know, doing the DNA, that, that makes things easier, but mm-hmm. we still need the stories. Do you know what part of the world they, they originated yeah, yeah. from? Like a, a bulk of it, as far as the African ancestry, both of it came from, from Nigeria, like 43%. Okay. Nigeria, Mali, 19%. Uh, Ghana, Togo, 19%. So a lot of that, you know, as far as the genetics, which, which is not, um, especially Nigeria being, it's the, like the most populous nation. So that's, that's not surprising. Yeah. But but once again, I just went to the whole narrative is in the port because as far as family history, I can only go as far as um, on my mother's side. I could probably only go far as um, um, and they're from Trinidad, right? Okay. Okay. So um, my on my mother's side, my uh, grandmother's mother, right? Right. And on my father's side, uh, my father's grandfather who funny enough was originally from like St. Vincent okay. and actually fought, I believe in, in World War One. As a matter of fact, I think in England- I was gonna say probably fought Yeah, fought for the British, right? <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, what was kind of bizarre is when I got my father's old passport and it, and it said British subject, you know. Really? Oh, yeah, wow. which, 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 is, which is kind of <laughs> wild, you know, when he passed away in, in, in 2004 and I was going through a stuff said British subject. Wow. You no, know, and, and uh, that was-, that was that was that was um a bit of that was a mind blower for me. You know? That so you had no idea. I, I did know, but w- w- when when something is in your in your face and mm-hmm. it's tangible, you know, it, it's a whole different um whole different feeling. Yeah, like, I, I do all the time, but when you say British subject, I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, no. My my mother is a is Irish, but a British subject. Um, but. <laughs> If you can, you can actually probably go further back in your line than I can with mine. But I mean, uh, because all the records got burnt in Ireland in the 1920s, I think. So, but uh, if I had said to my grandmother, who was born in Ireland, if I'd said to her, Granny, you're actually British, you know, which she was because of when she was born, oh, she'd have laid into me like nobody's business. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Anyway, right. that's, a, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. I find that the haiku community is a fairly white community. Mm-hmm. But am I looking in the wrong places? Yeah, I, I would say um, as far as like mainstream, 
um, in, in like English, as far as English speaking uh, haiku, as far as like the, the, the official institutions it, it is, is white dominated, like, you know, haiku society of America and those places. However, um, just like with all things, if, if you would go into other spaces, like for example, um, you have what they call haiku slams. As a matter of fact, they're, they're, they're actually uh, there's like a haiku slam dojos in which they give every year in the United States, um, nationally and also in various cities. And you find like a lot of diversity there. You find like a, a heavy um, participation of African-American poets, Latino poets, uh, South Asian poets, right? Um, within the United States, you'll find that, right? Mm-hmm. Also, like the Black Arts Movement um, in the late 60s, and the Black Arts Movement was like the artistic um, consort of, let's say, the Black Power Movement, where, where you had um, like poets and, and playwrights like Sonia Sanchez came out of that, uh, Emery Baraka came out of that, um, and, a, and a couple other people who are still alive today. Um, and particularly uh, Sonia Sanchez and also Amir Baraka, even though they had like their own twist on, on haiku, they wrote haiku, you understand? Yeah. You mentioned Richard Wright. Um, I mean, African-Americans were writing haiku since the Harlem Renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if you should go to certain spaces, you're gonna find um, you know, a lot of activity. Um, and you know, I credit like Sonia Sanchez because she, particularly in, in, in like an African-American community, she, she done a lot in, in terms of like expanding, you know, the, um, the awareness of it, you know, and so forth. But yeah, but it, it's where you, it's, it's definitely where you go. And that's just the United States. Now, if you go globally, mm-hmm. um, India has like a, a very active haiku community in India, what's going on. Oh, yeah. Um, in West Africa, if you go to like Nigeria and, and Ghana, they have, actually have like a, a, a real active, um like haiku community there like within the last uh 15 years so and that's outside the united states and this is in english you know so so yeah okay yeah i mean we're going to be exploring uh, we're going to have some readings from um west africa Mm -hmm. later in the series i'm looking forward to that and exploring that and as you know i was going to or will be going to south africa and I'm very much hoping that I'll meet some haiku poets while I'm over there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll see. I think they're very far and few between in South Africa. But mm-hmm. maybe I just haven't done enough research yet. So um... I got into haiku is a rebellion because I came out of the whole spoken word scene. Okay. My, I had a friend. His name is Mark Benum. He goes by the name of Benum. And we had like this whole jazz poetry, like monthly series in which, you know, we would have like, poetry to, to live music, you know, mostly jazz, oh, okay. jazz musicians, right? Mm-hmm. And we also, we also have features, you know, some popular poets, spoken word poets like Saul William, they became, you know, who became popular afterwards, you know, came through that. Mm-hmm. So, and I want to do haikus and rebellion against spoken word, you know, because spoken word is like, can be very um, flamboyant, a lot of narrative, very, very, very the imagery, heavy on imagery. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you juxtapose that with haiku, which is very like laconic, and it's um, it's more quiet and it's more meditative. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do it as a rebellion, you know, against that. And I think I was reading, you know, um, 
I think it was a Japanese haiku. And I was just completely blown away in terms of the brevity. It just left me speechless. And the thing about what was good about haiku is it's accessible, right? Mm. At the same time. So it's not intimidating. However, it's not something which is a, a walk in the park. It's not a pushover either. So that's how I got into it. Um, and then I, I wanted to find like journals because I, you know, I just wanted to hone my craft more. And I think Black Bow was probably the one of the earliest journals. And actually, Black Bow, the, the editor was based out in New Jersey, was like one of the first ones actually I got published. And this is like in 1990, um, going into like the 2000. It, it was it was some work. It was it was an adjustment. Like many of us, you know, we were all uh, all, all indoctrinated with the five seven five. Yes. You know, and I had to break out of that. And and, yeah. and I was so glad and so elated when I learned it. It, had, it didn't have to be five seven five. You know, I was so elated. I did have an impulse to like try to be experimental, mm-hmm. but I had to learn the form first. And it's kind of like what some of the uh, jazz uh, jazz musicians said. You know, you know, first you you learn the rules and you learn to break them. Yeah. So I think I'm now I'm comfortable where I, I mean I can actually break them. You mm-hmm. know, break break them comfortably. Where early on I, I was more finding my way. I started the same as you, indoctrinated with the idea of 575. And thank goodness there was a, a wonderful English poet who said to me, you know, you should probably just forget that idea. You don't have to do that. Right. Um, just you'll probably find it, it flows much better if you just do your own thing to a certain extent within, like you said, within the form. But then I was reading today, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to read it in any way, shape or form like uh, Etheridge Knight wrote it, but tying in that idea of 17 syllables and the, and the jazz, putting them together. He wrote a poem and it's in his Essential Etheridge Knight book in, published in 1986. And it was, making jazz swing in 17 syllables ain't no square poet's job. My accent's just wrong to, <laughs> to, to do that. But I, just, I just read that and, I, I, and you talking about the jazz, it's sort of, there seems mm. to be a, sort of a more, rhythmical feel about their work a more jazz feel maybe often yeah yeah that, that's definitely true because uh, they come out they come out of um the black arts movement mm-hmm. right and, and the black arts movement similar to the harlem renaissance um which the whole point of it was like to to actually um draw upon um the ethos uh, of black culture so jazz blues Mm-hmm. So it was very, it was very rhythmical, very rhythmical. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, some people argue would would debate it. You know, would it even be called haiku? Is it just like a shorter poem? And there's like a lot of debate on that. And and that's one thing I struggle with personally because you know what is the the fulcrum right of where something is haiku and it's it's something else. Another question I ask myself sometimes is, should we be making the distinction between haiku? And maybe micro poetry. My, the, the Swiss in me says, "Oh yes, we should. There are rules. We've got to keep the rules." Um, right. But then I think, well, as you said, rules are sort of there. You learn them, and then you push against them, don't you? I've taken up enough time. People want to hear you read your poetry. Sure. So, are you ready? Would you like to kick off? The butcher's compliment. So soft, the sawdust under my feet. The butcher's compliment, so soft, the sawdust under my feet. 
Thanksgiving dinner, we pretend not to hear the fire engines. Thanksgiving dinner, we pretend not to hear the fire engines. No fly zone, am I a terrorist for daydreaming? No fly zone, am I a terrorist for daydreaming? Stars begin to fade, so much music from unseen birds. Stars begin to fade, so much music from unseen birds. I wanted to go back and have a look at the story of a couple of them. Thanksgiving dinner. In your poem, you've got this, this in my head, quite a tense situation anyway of a Thanksgiving dinner. And then you've added more tension by sticking the fire engines in there. And I just, I wondered, is that like a scene from life or how did you put that together? Yeah, it is actually a scene from life. Um, I remember... Um, very vividly, it was Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, it was like Thanksgiving. And I was by myself because I, I don't personally celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, but I was by myself, right? And I remember there was, I remember the sound of fire engines, mm -hmm. right? And that struck me because in that poem, I want to talk about the ways in which we, as people, we block out like misery and we block out like um, just, just, just unfortunate things to maintain our sanity mm -hmm. and also to maintain um, our grip on life. You know, we just block all these things are happening simultaneously. You have a Thanksgiving dinner in which, and many, and you're right, many Thanksgiving dinners actually, there's some tension. Um, you know, uh, family tensions, you know, you know, there's family issues that you have. Um, you know, your brother did something, you know, uh, that you don't like, you got to see them again. And so you do have like that unspoken um, riffs there. And then going on simultaneously, somebody else is, is, is undergoing a, a, a whole tragedy, you know? And a lot of times we try to block that out, you know, to, to try to maintain our sense of happiness. Mm. So that's what I wanted to, to capture there. And then the butcher's compliment, the butcher's compliment, so soft the sawdust under my feet. I love the way you read that second line, so soft the sawdust under my feet. I was intrigued by this one. And it, I'm pretty sure it probably wasn't what you had in mind. When I read it, I felt being a woman of a certain age, that this could be written about a woman of a certain age where she's gone to the butcher's and, and he's given her a compliment. And it's the first time she feels seen for the first time in a long time. Because mm -hmm. once you get to a certain age, nobody looks at you, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> but some people don't like that. <laughs> so I could I could just see that in my story, that's that's what was going on. What was the story behind it in, in your head? That was drawn from history. Mm -hmm. um, a lot has changed now with, with butcher shops or, or abattoirs now. Mm -hmm. A lot has changed because mm -hmm. they're more cleaner. But there was a, a time in which, uh, at least in New York City, and um, I'm not sure if it's the same was in England or Switzerland, but I heard you know Switzerland has a big reputation of being clean. clean oh so yeah, very clean place. place. It didn't happen there. <laughs> but it did in we, London. It did in London. <laughs> <laughs> but when you go to a butcher shop, 
you know, don't be surprised if you have like sawdust mm-hmm. like on the shopping floor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember being so soft. When you go into these shops, you know, you know, you have these these mostly guys, you know, um, and you know they'll have like the 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 apron on, and the apron will be bloody or, or messed up, and they will have these these nice conversations with the people in the store, mostly women, mm-hmm. you know, because you know women usually come in there. You know, um, for you know the weekly, you know weekly meal, or uh, you know get their weekly supply of meat, or for Sunday dinner, which mm-hmm. is a big thing. You know, um, at least in my community, big thing Sunday dinner, your oxtail or your beef or whatever the case may be, and you have like this 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 nice little conversation. So that always struck me. Mm-hmm. Once again, you know, you have uh, these multiple things going on. You have, you know, butcher shops. So you have this this uh, you know slaughter going on. Or, Maybe not there, but you know, you're dealing with meat, you're trading in meat and blood. Yeah. But then again, you know, you have these wonderful personalities, you know, compliments, you know, how you doing today? And you know, and you have like these these warm exchanges going mm-hmm. on at the same time. And yeah. and you have the saw that was so soft. Yeah, yeah it, was. You know? <laughs> it was. And then the next one I wanted to ask you about was no fly zone. Am I a terrorist for daydreaming? And I I imagine that came out of um, the 9-11 situation, or am I wrong? Yes, you are right. 9-11, also Iraq, all right? Okay. Because um, mm-hmm. I remember I actually was there. I actually saw the buildings falling during that. And there was like a no-fly zone, mm-hmm. you know, in, 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 I know in New York and in, in much of the United States. Mm-hmm. It was like a no-fly zone. But also Iraq, because... At the invasion of Iraq in 1991, mm-hmm. um, in the northern part, with, with you know, with the Kurdish ethnic groups, or in the southern part, the U.S., uh, Britain, and France, they imposed a no-fly zone mm-hmm. there, which actually lasted up until the second invasion, up until it was it 2003, right? Mm-hmm. And so that whole notion of no-fly zone was actually a theme of this mili- militarization in the culture, mm-hmm. you know, because after 9/11, it was still the at least in the U.S. there was a complete militarization. Um, you know, you got used to seeing National Guards everywhere with something, you know, you didn't see. And that was that particular haiku was submitted for Peace is a Haiku Song, which was a mural project um, coordinated by Sonia Sanchez. Okay. And which she was taking various haikus submitted from all around the world. And they decided whether or not they will put this on a mural in Philadelphia. And if you, if you ever go to Philadelphia, you should, because they have like these amazing murals, okay. amazing murals. And, um, and as a counterpart, they also had um, an anthology. Mm-hmm. So, so the whole thing was peace. So I wrote that just to dis- discuss how militarized the culture was being, such to the effect that even the imagination, imagine the imagination being militarized, that if you think, even, even innocently, it doesn't even have to be intentional. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you don't have to be intentionally political. But just innocently, you know, um, think of, uh, uh, of, of something which is not in alignment with what the culture is, mm-hmm. that you are deemed um, a combatant, you're deemed a terrorist, yes. you know, you're, you're, you're deemed, and, you know, so that's why I was, I was playing around with, you know, with that. It takes me back to my childhood when um, being Irish in London, mm. obviously there was a lot of terrorist activity in London and it was mm-hmm. the IRA, mm-hmm. and I used to be so scared when I was on my way to school, because obviously on my, I, all my school books would have my name all over, over them, mm. uh, that somebody would 
see my name because a very prominent Irish terrorist has the same name as me. No relation, I would just like to point out. But just as a child, I was so scared. You said, am I a terrorist for daydreaming? And I was back on the bus to school, daydreaming out the window, but knowing that my bag with my books and my name were just next to me. So it hit me not for the same reasons it hit you, but I thank you for that. It's, it's really interesting where we can go with somebody else's work. It's, it's wonderful. Should we go into our next selection? The man who left is the man who came home. My cat sniffs anyway. The man who left is the man who came home. My cat sniffs anyway. Shrine for Shango, for the ladybug, a cemetery. Shrine for Shango, for the ladybug, a cemetery. I was interested in the, the culture, possibly the cultural reference to, sure. in this one. Tell us about Shango. What, what is Shango? Well, Shango is, is one of the, the Orishas, right? And Orisha is a spiritual system out of present Nigeria, West Africa, and also Benin, right? Okay. And, and, it's, and it's over 401, and, and Shango is one of the, the, the primary ones. And actually, uh, Shango has actually uh, um, survived the transatlantic slave trade in, in modern Caribbean parts of America, Brazil, and so forth. Because you have like the, the, the spiritual story, mm-hmm. and then you also have the historical story. Now, Shango was actually a king in the Oyo Empire, which is actually in present-day Benin. In, in, the, in the Orisha spirituality, uh, Shango represents um, dominion, authority, you know, um, your personal power, mm-hmm. all right, affiliated with things like lightning, and also the double axe. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of his implements is the double axe. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And his colors are normally red and white. All right. Very, Shango is known for being very strategic. Um, he's also lover of life itself. Like um, dance is also one of the things that fitted with him. In Nigeria, there's a drum called a bata drum, a mm-hmm. specific drum, which is the drum of Shango. So dance and so forth. So in this, in this instance, I was given by an Orisha priest. It was, he was, he was also, um, he does like a lot of woodwork and he actually drew, he actually, actually not drew, but he actually made um, like the double axes of Shango in red and white and gave it to me, right? And one day it was like a ladybug actually passed away um, near the axe because the axes below there was like this red cloth. Mm -hmm. And the ladybug passed away. Mm -hmm. And it caught me because the ladybug looked so at peace, even though it it passed away, it looked so at peace, it like it belonged there. Yeah. You know, just the whole color arrangement. Yeah. And it just struck me is that here is something which is 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 actually a symbol uh, to remind me that you have also have you have personal power, not absolute power, but you also have personal power, Mm -hmm. You, you know. You do have choice, you know, you do have, you're not, you're not completely a victim. Yes. And you had this ladybug who actually passed away, who actually chose to pass away on this thing. So mm-hmm. it was a, it was a cemetery for this, this ladybug. So it just, just struck me of the perspective of life. 
Yeah. For me, it went one thing for Ladybug, it, it was a cemetery. I sometimes write haiku um, with a reference that somebody would have to go to Google and look up. And I sometimes worry that that's not in keeping with the haiku tr tradition. Mm -hmm. I had to go and look at, look up Shango, which was really interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But how do you how do you feel about that? Do you do you think it's still valid to use a reference that somebody has to go away and, and research in your haiku? What are your thoughts on that? Like I never seen it as a conflict because the thing is is that as global haiku becomes, you know, we're going to run into like certain references or certain um, items and objects in which we may not be necessarily, you know, privy to, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, even, even if it's within the English language, you know, yeah. we're not necessarily be privy to. So I, I just never, you know, you know, just seen that as an obstacle. And also, this is not the first time um, the Orisha has actually been mentioned in haiku. As a matter of fact, Elizabeth Sarah Lamb, mm -hmm. she did a Renku, um, which discussed her, her, her experience in Nigeria. Okay. And in that haiku, she actually referenced Legba, who, who was the um, Orisha of the, of the crossroads. And she also uh, referenced Ifa, which is the divination system, but also mm -hmm. the, the Orisha actually governs divination. So she actually referenced that years ago. You know, oh, I'm going to have to look that up now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually in a haiku handbook um, okay. by uh, uh, Higginson. Learning gratitude. A gentle breeze on an August night. Learning gratitude. A gentle breeze on an August night. Geese going. Gone, the thought of filling my father's shoes. Geese, going, gone, the thought of filling my father's shoes. Now, I put those together because of the Kigos. Right. The first thing I wanted to ask you was, how do you feel about seasonal word in haiku? Do you think they're necessary? I don't think they're always necessary and this is my personal opinion always mm -hmm. necessary however i use them personally because i always want to point out like our direct influence and also our direct like synchronicity with the natural world mm. you know yeah. and the natural seasons i also want you know often want to, to to point that out so i use them you know mm -hmm. Sometimes it may be a little bit more subtle. So rather than saying that, 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 you know, talk about a snowflake, I may talk about goose down coat, you know, mm. you know, you yeah. know, so I may not necessarily be as direct, but I know I personally like to use that. And I hope it, that, that, that continues. Do I always use it? No, I necessarily always use it. The geese going gone poem, geese going gone, the thought of filling my father's shoes brought a lot of comment. And I'm so grateful again to Kurt for, for telling me, and I don't know if this was in your head, but it, it passed me by. I live near a lake and I often go down to the lake at the time when the geese are migrating. I had that season in mind. I had that picture in mind. But he says, he told me that the going gone is a sort of baseball terminology, possibly. And that this 
poem seasonally for him was baseball playoff seasons. Was was that in your mind when you were writing it? Yeah, actually, actually, he he is right. Um, like the whole term is actually when somebody hits a home run. I was still discussing the geese, but it, you know, um, I was just creatively playing around with it. But yeah, he is right. He's right. <laughs> well, in that case, that's interesting because he was then speculating if it was the uh, baseball thing. Was your father a big fan of baseball, and is that how you made that juxtaposition? How you came. With that with that link how did you come upon that link the geese going on and the thought of filling your father's shoes you know geese do a migration mm-hmm. and 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 the thought is as we all do is you know what will happen if you know your parents pass away and mm-hmm. are you are you up to the challenge of pat you know continue their legacy yeah or filling in their shoes whether it's being being the foundation of your family mm-hmm. you know whether it's honoring their wishes, whatever the case may be. So that's, that's what came to me, you know, when, when I, um, and I remember, cause I'm, I live in, currently live in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. not too far in Brooklyn, you have Jamaica Bay where, you know, you have like a lot of animals and so forth. So it's not unusual, even though we're in an urban area and, mm-hmm. and I was always caught by like geese, you know, just migrating. And when they would go, I often was filled with like this, this emptiness. And it's okay. this little sadness, like when they would go, Yeah, you know, when they would pass, when you start hearing them honking. You know. <laughs> but I also wondered before I knew about the baseball thing, I wondered if your family migrated to Brooklyn from somewhere so that you, you're specifically your parents. And so the geese going, going, gone is a, a bit like that sort of migration feeling of your parents coming into to New York. So it was actually death. You know, you know, death. I was thinking, okay, that's always been on my mind with, with, with my parents. You know, what, you know, what would you do if you know your parents pass away? You know, and um, that's always been hovering over me. And the geese just brought that out, you know, and reminded me of that. You know, oh wow, this togetherness, and then they just they, they were just gone. What swallows me more? This vacant lot or the baby in my arms. What swallows me more, this vacant lot or the baby in my arms. Watching stars, I think of mice and the crumbs they live on. Watching stars, I think of mice and the crumbs they live on. Now you just said that uh, geese going gone was about death and bizarrely probably i worry about death when i read what swallows me more this vacant lot or the baby in my arms Mm. probably for in a reverse situation you're Mm. worrying about what's going to happen with your parents dying Mm -hmm. in in the previous one and here when i read that i was just overwhelmed by sadness just at the thought that one day as big as my kids get you know as old as my kids get they're still my babies. And one day I'm not going to be there and I'm not going to be there to protect them. Oh, I feel a bit tearful even just thinking about it now. And this, this poem really brought that out for me. But maybe that's probably not what you were thinking when you wrote it. Let me tell you the, the, the story behind this, that, that, that poem. Um, there's, there's a photographer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, African-American photographer by the name of Roy DiCarapa. You know, he's born in Harlem. 
And, um, you know, he worked with the WP of the workers, um, the WP workers, can't remember what the PA stands for, but it was basically uh, for artists during the, the, the Great Depression. You know, they employed artists. So he was part of that. Okay. So he had a photo called Graduation, in which he had, it was, um, it was a Black woman, in, it was a Black and white photo mm-hmm. in um, a wedding dress, and it was sparkling white, and she was in this vacant lot. And that photo always stuck with me. Okay. And it always stuck with me, right? So one day in Brooklyn on Church Avenue, I was walking and I actually saw a young man. It was, he was probably a teenager mm-hmm. holding a baby and he was in front of a lot, a vacant mm-hmm. lot, mm-hmm. right? Being that I was already you know, predisposed and impacted by Carava's photo, mm-hmm. that image of the young man holding his baby caught my eye. And that's how I wrote that. So, it, so you have two situations here. You know, he was so absorbed, you know, by his brother and taking care of his brother and, and, and nurturing his brother. And then he was right, right next to a lot, which was visually swallowing him. So that's, that's how that poem came about. <laughs> but you're not, you, you aren't too far off. <laughs> but also what I wanted to talk to you about with this one is, well, both of these, What Swallows Me More and Watching Stars, I Think of Mice and the Crumbs They Live On, is that they're one, to me anyway, they're one image poems i had a question asked asked me and actually it's not just about your poems but i get asked a lot Mm. how is it one image haiku get published because i think a lot of people don't like them they don't see them as as haiku or senryu right again we go back to that discussion we were having before what is what is haiku and what is micro poetry whatever but i want to stand up for the one image poem i think they can are very valid as haiku or senryu. They have to work harder, perhaps, and you have to be more skillful to make them work. I think Ferris Gilly said uh, about them, a skillful poet can achieve resonance with a single topic poem. However, because it's difficult to create resonance without effective juxtaposition, she advises beginners to first become proficient at writing two-part haiku. What these poems show us is that you, you are strong as a, as a haiku poet, and you can use that one image and create haiku from it. I wondered, what, what are your thoughts on, on the one image idea? Yeah. Actually, if you look closely, within the one image, there is a juxtaposition, okay. right? There, there is a split, there is a kerigi. However, the kerigi is with the image itself, yeah. right? There's okay. usually some type of transition, but it's very subtle. There is a juxtaposition there. And I do agree with you that the, what will also makes a, a one image poem works is you have to have what, what they call like, lack of a better word, haiku, haiku or a trans, some type of transcendence where expands your awareness. Yes. You, you understand? Definitely expands your awareness. So with the first one, you know, what swallows me more, the vacant lot. So you have the juxtaposition between a vacant lot, the image, mm-hmm. you have a vacant lot image, and then you have an image of a baby in somebody's arms, right? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so there is... You know, there is a juxtaposition there, but it, 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 it you know, it is a little bit more sleight of hand, you know, than other poems, which are, you know, is, is much more obvious. You mm-hmm. know, the break, the break is much more obvious. Yeah. I suppose the same could be said of watching, watching stars as well. Mm-hmm. Forgive me. Before we finish, though, I wanted yeah. just to share something that one of our community wrote to me when she found out that I was talking to you. Uh, Masia Moldovan wrote, wrote to me and said, this is my favorite 
of Tyrone MacDonald's poems, and I'll just read it to you. Yeah. I wonder if wind is even necessary. Cherry blossoms. I wonder if wind is even necessary. Cherry blossoms. And that's from The Heron's Nest. That's another beautiful one. And it's so hard to write an original, interesting blossom poem, isn't it? It is. It, it, it is. And one thing, like the rebellious streak in me, <laughs> I, for, for many years, I actually stayed away from cherry blossom poems because mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to seem like a poser. You know, I didn't want to say like a poser. I, I didn't want to seem like a, I'm a, a, a Nippon, a Nippon Felix, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. I didn't want I didn't want to seem like that. And I said, if I'm going to write a cherry blossom poem, it's going to have to be authentic to me. And what happened was my first cherry blossom poem was actually published. And I remember Stan and Bottle Rockers did a whole series on plants and flowers. Yeah. And that was the first, not that one was another cherry blossom poem actually was published there. And, and it was actually my experience in DC because mm-hmm. if you go to DC, uh, Washington DC um, during like April, they have like cherry blossoms all over the place. Yeah. And, the, and, and what I was told, the history behind that was that um, it, was, it was a gift from the emperor of Japan is a measure of peace, you know, and it's wonderful. So that was my first, uh, you know, cherry blossom poem. I think the poem went like this. It went slave cemetery the obliviousness of cherry blossoms. Slave cemetery, the obliviousness of cherry blossoms. And because also while I was in DC, there was also a book regarding unnamed like slave cemeteries in DC. So when I was there and I saw all these, you know, cherry blossoms and lovely landscape, I said to myself, you know what? There's some slave cemeteries here, you know? And that's what brought the poems. That was actually my first cherry blossom poem that I ever wrote. And, and what happened is that as the years went by, people started planting them in the neighborhood. So it wasn't something which was, I was estranged to, mm-hmm. but something which actually was part of my everyday life. So. Tyrone, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you. And before you go, I just liked, I was going to ask you to, to read No Fly Zone because sure. Up until this point, it was the one that hit me most. But when I heard you read What Swallows Me More, I've changed my mind. Can we have What Swallows Me More again, please? Sure. No, not a problem. You got it. You got it. You got it. What Swallows Me More, this vacant lot or the baby in my arms. What Swallows Me More, this vacant lot or the baby in my arms. That's so lovely. I've just, I've, I'm going to need a hanky in a minute. Just. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Thank you, Tyron. No Thank problem. you very much. I'd love talking to you. I hope you'll come back and read to us again. This was absolutely super. I'd love to come back and just to share, <laughs> and share my work. Thank you. All right. Have a wonderful day. Once again, thanks to Tyrone for coming along and visiting with us. I really hope we'll hear from him again, don't you? Next month, if the internet fairies are kind to me and the COVID monsters don't get in the way, we'll be chatting with another wonderful poet and hearing his or her work. But in the meantime, do go over to the Hide Your Pete podcast and find out what we're up to there. And most importantly, keep writing, 
And if I've forgotten to put something in the show notes, just send me an email and I'll sort it out for you. Ciao.